If you have a Bible with you this morning, I would ask that you open it to John chapter 19. If you don't have one with you, you may borrow one of ours in the pew back in front of you. And you can find on, uh, in that black ESV Bible, uh, John 19 on page 905. We will soon be reading from the first 16 verses of that chapter. I hope that all who are gathered here had a wonderful and happy Thanksgiving. Um, I know that some of you weren't able to spend it with your family necessarily the way you might want to. Uh, this is a symbol of the fact that we are indeed in trying times and yet especially in those trying times it is important to give thanks to God to remember that he has been kind and good to us. He has seen us through another year. His faithfulness has been upon us and will continue to be upon us as we go forward so let us, as Paul instructs us, give thanks continually, even as we've read already in Psalm 111 this morning, that he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. Uh, my family had food provided for them on Thanksgiving, and it was, it was delicious. We, we did uh, the normal Thanksgiving thing. We went around the table and said what we were thankful for, and then I asked the children, uh, of all the food that we had, what was their favorite and what was their least favorite? Um, my children were very happy to answer what their favorite was. That certainly changed later because I asked prior to dessert, and there's no doubt that the, the pie was likely the best, not because of anyone who made it, but because it was just you know, filled with sugar, and uh, sugar tops everything. So, um, but we also asked which they liked least, and one of our children was very, very slow to answer, and we kind of pressed, and they, they responded and said, listen, I, I don't want to say, because every single person in our family had a hand in making some of the dishes, and sometimes multiple dishes, and uh, no one was sort of exempt from that, and, and this child said, I, I don't really want to answer, because I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings by saying I, I didn't like their dish, and I thought that that was a, a really really good response. I thought that was very thoughtful. And it's an interesting thing. It's, it's not that that child didn't like one of the dishes. They didn't. Uh, as a matter of fact, they stayed far, far away from it, which is how we know they didn't. So they couldn't even answer that because they didn't even try it. But nevertheless, there's this, this very helpful thing that God has done for us. And that is he has put a space, he has put a filter in between what our heart thinks and feels and what our mouths say. Now, for some of us, that filter is really thick, and we catch just about everything, and we, we can put on a very good front. For others, that filter is very thin, and they spend a good portion of their lives saying, I'm sorry for saying ridiculous things. But nevertheless, God has done a, a very, very kind thing to us in providing us with a, a time lapse in between what we think and what we speak so that we can stop ourselves. What would happen if that filter was sort of completely removed? What if everyone knew what you were thinking the moment you thought it. Kindly consider that as you go through the week. As you work yourself through this next week and those thoughts pop into your head, think, what if that thought was known? What if the people around me, and specifically the person that I thought that about or the thing that I thought that about that somebody else might care about, what if, what if they heard that? What if they knew that? What if everyone knew of every thought you had, whether it was good or bad, kind, or ugly, encouraging, or just chalked full of depravity. I don't think that it's much of an exaggeration to think that the world would dissolve into chaos quite quickly. In the end, this is something like the judgment of God. God will lay us out. 
He will make sure that every thought and every deed, every action and every word are known to all. Every idle word, even though spoken under your breath, your actions, feelings, and opinions and desires will be known to all people. Our depravity will be on full display. Our text this morning is interesting because we get a a piece of that. We get a picture of that this morning. As we turn to John chapter 19, Jesus' trial is coming to an end. Now, as we've talked about before, our chapter divisions, and even where I start and stop sermons, is somewhat fictitious and arbitrary. We're just sort of picking it. There might be better reasons or worse reasons for it. But it's important to remember that his trial is one big story. And so we do well to remember where we've come from. Pilate has tried to stand aloof over both Jesus and the Jews, showing that he is the one of authority and the one of power. The Jews are pressing hard because they feel like they have a good case to kill Jesus. As we turn to this, Christians realize that this particular judgment of Jesus and what is going to happen to him on the cross is something of a superimposition. So when we superimpose pictures, what we do is we put one picture over the top of another picture. One Father's Day, my children gave me a sort of like a comic book with my face put over a lot of the other pictures with the title Super Dad. It was, a, it was fictitious, fictitious, don't worry, it wasn't real. Um, I can't fly, unfortunately. But they, they gave this to me as a beautiful present to give to me. It was a wonderful book. And that's what we mean by superimposing. And what we have in the trial and the judgment of Jesus is something of a superimposing of the end in the middle of history. Not just in picture, but in time. Time is somehow folded back on itself. And the end has become here in 30 AD or so. This is what gives Paul the right so often to talk about our judgment, not as though we will pass it when it comes, but that we have already gone through it. This is why we have confidence in the end that we will be justified, not because we will be justified, but because we have been justified. And while that is interesting enough to talk about, I I really do want to use that to point out something else. The crucifixion of Jesus gives us a picture of what that final judgment will be, both for us and for unbelievers, as both Pilate and the Jews undo or or, or undergo something of an unraveling before the cross of Jesus Christ here. The cross will indeed cut through all of our attempts at clearing ourselves, of making ourselves look right, and of our own perceived greatness. It is not the final judgment for Pilate, and it is not the final judgment for these Jewish leaders. Nevertheless, John is doing something of a warning shot for us warning us that the sort of unraveling that you see in both Pilate's life and the Jews' life will indeed come to us at this judgment. Let us go to John chapter 19 and read those first 16 verses. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. 
for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, or in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. What I would like to do today is show you three things about what we can see about the final judgment and how the judgment rips away all of our pretenses today. First, I want to show you the reality of Pilate's pride. The reality of Pilate's pride. Pilate seems to want to continue to use Jesus and the Jews to get what he thinks he deserves, which is an outpouring of you are the one who is in authority, an outpouring of you are the one who is in power, and so therefore we come to you, Pilate, humbly asking that you do what we, we ask of you, because he is the one who is in control. Pilate comes out and in verse 4 says, I find no guilt in him. Now what he has done is he has flogged Jesus. There's several different layers of flogging in Roman terminology, and this was likely a lighter beating. A beating nonetheless, but a lighter beating. It was not the vicious beating that likely occurred later that John kind of skips over. It was a lighter beating. The crown of thorns has been pressed upon his head. Deep cuts would have come into Jesus' scalp. They would have mocked him by putting on this robe and sending him out. You'll notice, though, that what Pilate doesn't do is goad the Jews here like he has done before and like he will do again. He doesn't say, look, here is your king. But rather, when he brings him out, he says, I'm doing this so that you might see that I find nothing wrong with him. Behold the man. He doesn't say, behold your king. He's trying to get Jesus released. What he is likely doing is having beaten him and humiliating him. He's asking the Jews, is this not enough? I don't see anything worthy of condemnation in this man. Frankly, I find no guilt in him at all. I have done enough to shame him. I have done enough to put a good lesson into him. Shall we not let him go? They refuse steadfastly in verse 6. So Pilate, again, making sure that they realize 
that he is the one who is in authority, he is the one who is in power, looks at them and says, you take him then, and you crucify him. He knows that they have no right to do so. He knows that they can't do this without his say-so. He is trying to show that his authority and his judgment are enough. He says, you don't trust my authority, you don't trust my power, and you don't trust my judgment, then fine, you take him, you handle him. All of that authority, all of that power is about to come crashing down. The Jews look at him and say, listen, we've got a law. This man has claimed to be the son of God and therefore he deserves to die. Now what the Jews likely meant by that is not so much that anyone who claims to be a son of God is worthy of condemnation or that that in and of itself is blasphemy because it's frankly not and it never was. The Old Testament at times, as we're going to see, especially in 2 Samuel 7, calls human beings sons of God. There's nothing wrong with that. The Jews didn't have time to explain everything to Pilate. What they likely meant about this by saying that he has called himself the son of God is not just that he called himself the son of God, but he called himself the son of God. He isn't one like many. He is unique. And that uniqueness has come through in so many of the things that Jesus has said back in John chapter 5 and in John chapter 9. He is uniquely the Son of God. This is likely their problem with it, but that's not likely what Pilate hears. What Pilate hears is that this man is a Son of God, some sort of holy man. And that if he is about to go forward and he is going to crucify what he considers to be an innocent holy man who knows the kind of curses that are going to come down upon him. Add to this something that's not in John's text, but we find in the book of Matthew, in Matthew 27, 19, that Pilate's wife had a dream about Jesus the night before. And she said, while he is sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him and said to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him in a dream. Likely this put fear into him. The text says he feared, became very afraid, or he um, grew much more afraid. There's nothing in the text to show that Pilate actually became more afraid than he was. There's nothing in the text that indicates that he was afraid before. It's likely just that he became very afraid, given what his wife had said to him, given the fact that he now thinks that he's about to condemn a holy man. Pilate is really afraid, and so he turns and he goes back in immediately to talk to Jesus. Jesus has already said, my kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate goes back in and he says, okay, your kingdom's not of this world. You're a holy man. You're a son of God. Where are you from? Jesus just frankly doesn't ask. answer. Pilate then does the only thing that Pilate knows how to do. He flexes. He says, listen, my authority was spurned by the Jews, and now my authority is being spurned by you. Don't you understand that I am the one who has the authority to kill you, and I am the one who has the authority to let you go? No one else has this power. Who are you going to appeal to? Do you not care about your life? It doesn't matter what the Jews say. It doesn't matter what Caesar says. What matters right now is what I say. I am the only one with authority. I can condemn you, and I can let you go. But Jesus knows, better than Pilate does, that all of Pilate's authority, all of his pride, all of what he thinks is his glory are nothing but pretensions. Jesus looks at him and says, you would have no authority, none at all, 
over me unless it had been given you from above. Now, when we read that word it, we immediately think that that is talking about authority. It is likely not talking about the authority. It doesn't work in English. I don't know exactly how we would translate this in English, but in Greek, it's pretty undefined. It can't actually refer to authority, or at least we would think that it doesn't because they don't grammatically match the way that they should. Something else has been given over to him, and likely it's the entire preceding. What he's saying is, you would have no authority over me at all, and given what he says after that, unless I had been delivered over to you. That is, Pilate, you're a cog, man. You're a pawn. You have no authority to let me go free at all. You have no authority to condemn me. All of this is, is a working of a machination that, that you have no control over. You think that you're an authority. You think that you have power to crucify me. You think you have power to let me go. You have nothing, Pilate. No matter what you want to do, it has been written what will happen. This is proven exactly as Jesus would say in verse 12, because from then on, Pilate sought to release them. He wants to let him go. He walks out. He's going to use all of his authority. He's going to use all of his power to make sure that Jesus is freed. Come on, Pilate. Flex again. But he finds that he can't. The Jews immediately cry out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Caesar's friend is almost a technical term for this inner group and inner circle of people who were known by Caesar and loved by Caesar, who aided him and carrying out his justice everywhere he turned. And I say very clearly, listen, you crucify him, you're his friend. You turn your back on him, you are an enemy and you are no friend of Caesar's. And the implicit hint there is, and we will let him know. Pilate, with all of his authority to release him, to keep him, now has his hands tied. He can do nothing. Pilate cares about himself too much to let the innocent man go now. He must crucify him. So, inevitably, even though Pilate wants to release him, he cannot. He has absolutely no authority anymore because he loves himself too much. Pilate is stuck. Where did all of his power and authority go? He never had it. It was all just fake, a pretense. He has some worldly authority, but when it comes right down to it, all of Pilate's pride, all of his aloofness, all of his arrogance was just fake. And the cross of Christ demonstrates that. There was nothing that Pilate could do to stop it. There was nothing that he was going to do to propel it forward. Pilate isn't important. He's just a man who happens to be placed in a position where Jesus passed in front of him. Friends, absolutely nothing of yours is of your doing. Anything good, anything righteous, anything holy, anything wonderful in you, any accomplishment that you have has very little to do with something that you have drummed up in yourself. Listen, even outside of a worldview where we think that God is actually God and he has actually made us and he is actually working in the world, even outside of that, Evolution would teach us that DNA provides us with a great deal of our capabilities. And sociology teaches us that culture allows us, if anything, to maximize or to minimize those abilities. Even in the world, outside of God's providence, people are very clear. 
Certain people achieve because they've been given much. Certain people achieve little because they've been handed very little. And under God's creation, under God's providence, how much less do we have to brag about or be proud about? How much less have we done on our own? You have nothing to be proud about. Everything that makes you look down on other people, everything that makes you think that you were better than them, their lack of maturity, their lack of knowledge, their lack of faith, their lack of logic, their lack of backbone, their lack of money, their lack of culture, or reverse all those things as you mock those who you might consider to be above you. All of it will evaporate. Your pride will be exposed in the end, and you will be shown to be just as inept as Pilate is. Paul writes to the Corinthian church who is very proud of their, themselves. They thought that they were, they were important to God. They thought that they were important and could be used by God because of all the gifts that they had. Paul writes to them scathingly in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Friends, Pilate's pride is revealed to be nothing more, nothing more than a facade. And so will all of ours. Secondly, notice then the reality of Israel's idolatry. Israel had always wrapped itself in what they thought was God's protection. If you read through the prophets, it's clear that they thought that they had it made in the shade simply because they were the chosen people of God and they were related somehow through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amos 5.18 is perhaps the best example of this. As Amos is preaching to the northern kingdom and he goes to them and he says, you guys want the day of the Lord to come because you think it will be some sort of deliverance for you. And he asks them, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. The people of God will not escape. The Israelites will not escape judgment on the day of the Lord. Amos is warning them. Friends, you, you ought not want the day of the Lord to come, especially those Israelites, for it will be judgment for them. Even to these Jews, Jesus has already said, quoting from Isaiah 6, back in John 12, 40, that God has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they would see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Here they are seemingly covering themselves in what they feel is righteousness. Jesus has spoken what on the lips of any other human would be nothing but rank blasphemy. They talk about needing to protect the glory of God. They talk about the law. We have a law. This law, it certainly, it comes from God. We've got this law. It was given to us by God. We must uphold the law and uphold the glory of God. And so therefore, we have to kill this man. But in the end, all those pretensions of why they are acting and the good that they are acting for are blown away. It's not so much that they're going to try and use political power to get at the end that they want, but rather, in their desire and their zeal to destroy Jesus, that filter that God has so helpfully given them goes away. In a blink of an eye, it's removed. They utter the absolutely unbelievable phrase, we have no king but Caesar. Of 
all of the statements in John that speak of the Jewish leadership's failure and sin, of Israel's failure and sin and the faithlessness, this one is far and away the top. Nothing screams that they are faithless quite as much of this. Pilate put forward a mask of power and authority when he had one. And the Jews here are putting forward a mask of righteousness. And in one instance, that filter is removed and you see what they truly think. They don't have God as a king. They don't have God ruling over them. They only bow down to worldly powers. It is a flat-out denial of God. It is a politically expedient way to get to their evil ends, a demonstration that their own particular brand of righteousness is empty and indeed worthless. One's reminded of 1 Samuel 8, 7, where Samuel has the people come before him and say, we want a king, and God tells them, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. At least, at least, those people rejected God for an Israelite. They rejected God for Saul. These Jews reject Christ for Caesar. This is nothing but a denial of God on high. It is a demonstration quite clear in my mind that they trust in chariots and horses and not in the power and the might of their God. It's a demonstration they don't trust God to give them what they, they need and what is right. They don't trust God to protect them. They don't trust God to give them what is good. They don't trust God to deliver them from evil. They don't trust God, but instead they take the most expedient route because what they want is what they worship over God. They don't trust God, but instead find their hope and future in political statements and in craftsmanship. It reveals who their God is. It is not the God who gave promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is not the God who gave the law to Moses. It is not the God who gave the promised land through Joshua. It is not the God who gave the kingdom through David. It is power because they're serving up Jesus for this little bit of power. It is their tradition for they hand over Jesus to maintain it. And it is their own self because Jesus threatens only them. Listen to Isaiah 51, 7 and 8 and ask yourself if this sounds like these Jews. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Isn't this what they're proclaiming? We have a law. We're righteous. This is the good and right thing to do. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Friends, be very, very careful with what you put in first position in your life. These leaders are hypocrites. They are preening and they are posing themselves as righteous, while all the time they have nothing but sin and death lurking in their hearts. What do you serve? What is the thing that is the only thing for you? What is the thing that trumps everything else in your life? Don't answer that flippantly and move on. Dwell on that question 
and ask, how do you know that this is what I serve with my whole heart? Do you declare that God is your God but serve money? Do you spend your life worrying and thinking and praying about money? Do you find that you are a generous person, able to see money go and money come? Or are you stingy, greedy, and covetous? Do you declare that God is your God but really just serve yourself? Doing the bare minimum to make yourself feel good because that's really all you care about. Simply doing just enough to appease your conscience, doing these little religious things on the side instead of serving God with your whole heart. Do you declare that God is your God, but really just serve your tradition? Friends, can you only listen to people who agree with you? Do you ever try to listen to other voices that might disagree with your tradition and see the truth that might be in them? Are you concerned that the truth might really upset what you hold dear? Do you declare that God is your God, but only want a justice that serves your purposes? What happens when the justice of God actually costs you? Do you still cry for justice? Beware of thinking that you are special, set apart, or separate from these Jews here. Beware of even calling them these Jews, because they are every single one of us. It is easy to serve your self-interest turn a blind eye to the grave injustices of this world because we are surrounded by this world. It is easy to be lulled into worldly thinking, to serve worldly power, and to lust for worldly justice. It is easy to serve these things steadily and under the pretense of loving God. One day, doing that, you will wake up and say, along with these Jews, we have no king but Caesar. We have no allegiance but to America. We have no allegiance but to ourselves. We have no allegiance but to power. And you can be so overcome by blindness to think not only are you doing what is right, but you are serving God by doing it. Listen, we're Southern Baptists. We have a long history of this. Long history. You shouldn't think that you are separated from that history. Read, read some of what our founding members wrote in the 19th century about slavery, about how they were doing God a service by enslaving Africans. That is this. They're just serving their tradition. We are to uphold them as brothers and sisters in the faith? Some of them might, might have been. But it's easy to be blinded in the world. It is easy to serve yourself and not God. John 16, Jesus says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming that whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. In the end, their idolatry is exposed. And in the end, if you do not know Christ, yours will be as well. Third, and most importantly, the reality of Christ's coronation. The soldiers here 
And the entire paragraph, all of it, all the way down to verse 16, is a mockery of Jesus. They are doing everything they can to show that he is not truly a king. They put this twisted thorn crown on his head that both inflicts pain on him and also shows that he's not really a king. They take a purple robe, which would have been not a cheap robe, and put it on him after beating him so that when he comes out, the whole point is that this man looks so pathetic that he could never be a king. He could never be a king. They even mockingly say, Hail, King of the Jews. We say that this is a mocking, but in truth they're doing better than they know. Remember, this is something of a picture of the last judgment. They mean this to mock him, but this is nothing less than the coronation of Jesus as king. The time of the end is being somewhat superimposed here as Jesus is being hailed truly as the king. Just like in some superimpositions, there is a blurring of the edges and it it seems like it's veiled and you can't quite see the glory of Jesus here, but it's here. Frankly, it's on full display. Last week we mentioned briefly This idea that Jesus has come into the world, that his kingdom is out of the world, that he has come into the world, he says, so that he could witness to the truth. Made reference to 2 Samuel 7 then. Let's look at that a little bit more fully. If you turn back in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7, we come to probably the highlight of the Old Testament. If there was ever one particular passage that might be the pinnacle of all of Old Testament revelation, It is this promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7. David has settled the kingdom. And he has realized after building his own house that God is still traveling around in the tabernacle that he had commanded Moses and Aaron to make for him. And David felt a little embarrassed by this. And he said, well, I I would like to build God a temple. So he goes to Nathan the prophet and he says, Nathan, I'm going to build God a temple. And Nathan says, I see no objection to that. Go, do as your heart desires. And then God comes to Nathan and he says, well, Nathan, hang on. That's not actually going to be okay. David's not going to build me a temple. It wasn't because God was mad at David, but God had something better for David in mind. And so we read this passage beginning in halfway through verse 11. There we read, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will worship, or I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, throughout this whole passage, God is using quite a bit of sort of pun. 
He is talking about the temple as a house, but he's also talking about a house as we would know it from the dynasties of kingdoms. So the house of Tudor or the house of Windsor. This is the kind of house that he says he's going to build. He says, you're not going to build for me a temple, but I'm going to build for you a house that is a lineage, a line of of kings that will come from you. It is David's son that is being spoken of here. Midway through that passage, he says that he will make me a house. And there is something of a truth in that in the person of Solomon. Solomon, David's son, does indeed build the temple for God. But there is also a way to understand that figuratively, just like he has been speaking to David. Your son will come and he will make for me a divine lineage. He will make for me a kingly lineage. And in Jesus, we have this supremely fulfilled As God's son on earth, both in the divine sense and the human sense, Jesus shows that he is the dynasty. He is the the house that comes from God and comes from David. So he is both David's son and he is the son of God. But he also builds a true and lasting temple for God. A temple not made with hands, not made with the efforts of humans, but made by the very Spirit of God working in the people of God, being built up into a holy temple. The context in which all this happens is the fact that the Son must be a king. For God to say, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son, means that Solomon was like a son to him. The whole purpose of that son language is that the son is to supremely reflect exactly what the father was. This is how the ancient world worked. My father was a welder. Our world doesn't work like that anymore. I am not a welder. As a matter of fact, my dad told me that I was never to touch a welding torch because he didn't want me to do what he did. He actually threatened me, but that's for another time. So I have absolutely no ability and stuff like that at all, but that was not the case for centuries upon centuries. Sons did what their fathers did. Why was Jesus a carpenter on earth? Because Joseph was a carpenter. You do what your dad does. You follow in his footsteps. You carry on his name. You uphold his image. And Jesus does this supremely. In John 5, 19, he does all the Father shows him. In John 8, 28, he always does what is pleasing to the Father. He is always upholding the image of God. And listen to the very thing that kings are supposed to be from all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, hundreds of years before David came on the scene. Moses writes this in the book of Deuteronomy. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The king is to be the first and foremost keeper of the law. He is to be doing always what is right and good before God. And in doing so, he witnesses to the truth of God's revelation, just as Jesus said a king is supposed to do. If you read through the rest of the history of Israel, why is it that the people are continually judged? Do we hear of the rampant sin of God's people? We do. And why? Because we hear of the rampant sin of God's kings. He The king is the image of God to his people. 
When he sins, the people will sin. So Jesus is a son of God in the, in the idea that he is divinely from God. He is the son of God on high, true God of true God, but he is also a son of God and that he is the righteous king who shows the image of God forever. And yet you will notice something odd in that passage in 2 Samuel 7, 14. If this is truly about Jesus, then why does it say when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men? If this is supremely about Jesus, and Jesus was sinless, why does this apply to him? Does it apply to him? And if this doesn't apply to him, what other bits of 2 Samuel don't apply to him? No, it, it applies to him. And we're not just getting out on that if clause. It applies to him. Because we can't forget what is truly happening here. Isaiah 53, 4 and 6. Surely, he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was not his iniquity. It was ours. But this transference is so sure, whole, total, and complete that Paul can write in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin. To be sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, in this great act of sacrifice, Jesus shows himself to be great David's greater son. He is the true and wise king the Jews themselves were claiming to wait for. He protects his people from their greatest harm, which is their death, by taking it on for them. He delivers his people from their greatest enemy, their sin, by dying to it. He brings his people safely into the Lamb, the land by winning it for him. He declares to his people what is good and right and true by giving life, his own life, over to the very will of God. After all, what is our problem? What is the problem with you people? What is the problem with me? What is the problem with the Jews? What is the problem with Pilate? What is the problem going all the way back to Adam? Is it not just this? In its very essence, is it not just this? We don't trust God. We just don't trust him. We don't trust God for our security, so we run to worldly powers. We don't trust God for our pleasure, so we run to sinful desires. We don't trust God for our justice, so we take whatever we can get our hands on. But here, as he gives himself over, even in the face of such hostility and hatred and anger, Jesus shows perfect, absolutely perfect trust in God. And he models that trust for us. He trusts that God loves him. He trusts that God will see him through. He trusts that God will not let this evil stand in the end. He trusts that ultimately God will do what is right. He trusts that, as Isaiah says, God will divide with him, him a portion with the many and divide the spoil with the strong. This is not a sad picture of a beaten and broken man. It is nothing less than the picture of a king triumphant. 
Because in giving his life, he wins life for all of us. He does by putting his life before these wicked and evil men do the very thing that a king of God's must do. He is a king who has given himself over to the will of God fully and totally to the complete and final measure. And in doing so, he saves us. Friends, that's not humiliating. That's glorious. And it might be a hidden glory. It might be fuzzy on the edges. But he is covered with that glory nonetheless. It is a glory that can only be seen through the eyes of faith. And frankly, only recognized by those who trust in Jesus the way Jesus trusts in his God. Friends, all of this is true. All of this is true because the events of the cross will strip us down to the marrow of who we are. Ask yourselves how you would fare in that light. Who in here is powerful enough, strong enough, holy enough, upright enough, moral enough? Who in here is smart enough, wise enough, right enough? to stand up to that kind of scrutiny. Just as Pilate's pride was exposed and Israel's idolatry, whatever your besetting sin is, it too will be exposed on that day. Your condemnation will be just and it will be confessed by all and seen by all to be just. You'll have nothing to stand on. You'll have no pleas, no excuses. You will stumble over the stumbling block and it will crush you or... Or, if you see the truth of the gospel this morning, the blessed truth that Jesus has taken your iniquities and sins upon him, that he provides healing for you because his life was given, that he has redeemed you through his blood, giving you the forgiveness of sins. By doing so, you will not only have freedom from your sins, but you will be free from the wrath that is to come. And you will come to see this man who here is beaten and alone, ragged and dying, not covered in shame, but anointed in glory and power. And you will see not a pathetic criminal, but a king. And not just a crucifixion, but a coronation. I pray, pray that you trust in this vision today and see this glory, for this is nothing less than our salvation. Let us pray. Father, the picture presented to us here of Jesus is not one of glory as the world sees it, but only of shame and humiliation. It is only through the eyes of faith that we can see past the veil that is provided by this world, past the picture understood by our eyes to the glory that is real and true. May you cause us to see that glory. May that vision propel us into the world, give us fuel for how you have called us to live our lives and a passion to have others see that very same glory. We ask this in Jesus' name, for the good of your name and of your people. Amen.